Good morning. It's good to be with you all. I invite you to turn in your Bibles. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to go ahead and turn it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be uh, reading from that passage in just a moment. It'll be the first thing we look at this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, I will just say before I get into the lesson that it's just it's very good to be back. Um, some of you were asking about the gospel meeting in California. That's actually the first gospel meeting I've ever held. Originally, it was supposed to be me giving a report of, of the work that I was doing at Buckhorn uh, because Rose Avenue was one of the congregations that was actually supporting me. And so it was just good to be able to put names to faces. And, and really, it, it is a good, beautiful thing to get to know just brethren from around, uh, especially different parts of just, just our country. Uh, but surely around the world. I was uh, talking to someone about the trip there, and they said, well, how did you like California? And I said, well, it was kind of scary. <laughs> and and uh, they said, well, was it as bad as you, you thought it was? And actually, this is something that one of the members asked me when I, you know, about midweek through the, through the study, through the series that I was preaching on. And um, I said, you know... <laughs> At first, I was going to try and joke with them. I, I, I started to smile, and I started to say, no, I was absolutely correct about my assumptions. But honestly, it is much better than you think, particularly when you've spent your whole time with brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and so there, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, even in California, no matter what you may think. And uh, I would just say pray for them because they are doing a good work. Brother uh, Tom Thornhill he is, he's, he's doing such a good work there, and I just appreciated him and his wife, Terry, getting to know them a little bit more throughout the week. It was, it was just such a good time to be able to grow with them and, and just share in fellowship and, and worship uh, and, and just get to know more brethren. So I would just uh, encourage you to pray for them as they continue that work uh, over there, not down there, but over there. Um, but it is very good to be back with my home family uh, at Lakeside. It's, it's good to see your faces and it's good to be able to hear your voices in song. And I just uh, hope that you're just as excited to see me back because we are just going to be continuing on in our series on authority. Uh, and, and we've had uh, several lessons up to this point about authority. But the reason that it's been uh, kind of a longer series is because what I want to do is just break things down into very... Uh, very manageable, simple uh, lessons, so that way there's no way anybody can say, well, that was too complicated, you know, it just seems like you're using a lot of, um, you know, words that you guys just came up with. No, we're not. We are, we are just talking about how we logically communicate to one another. And that is how we establish authority. That's how we interpret scripture. That's, that's how we interpret all forms of communication. And so now we come to, as we look at how do we, how do we establish authority, now we come to the question of silence. And I just want to uh, ask the question, as you see on the screen, just from the beginning, just be thinking about this. Does silence speak? That is an interesting question, to say the least. But does silence speak? Well, within the last three seconds, you can tell it doesn't. <laughs> no, silence does not speak. Now, when, 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 I mean, when you think about that, it's silence. It's, it's defining that which is not spoken. And so uh, we come to the question when looking at authority, does silence of the scriptures, does the silence of God in certain areas or arenas of life, does this permit or does it prohibit 
whatever we are talking about, whatever the topic may be. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning. Maybe this is a lesson you've heard before, but this is something you can never, you can never talk about authority too much. Now, you can be repetitive. But even there, I think there's a case to be made for repetitious preach, preaching. I don't just, but I don't want to be repetitive uh, vainly. Um, and, and so what I want to do is just, again, have a, a very simple and basic conversation about what we see within the scriptures about silence. First of all, what does the Bible have to say about its own silence? Uh, because, interestingly enough, we are given meaning to that. Now, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But over in 2 Timothy chapter 3... 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 16, beginning, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, you may just put a marker there, because we'll come back to that later on in the study. But the first thing that I want to note is, the, the Bible is the good news that God has revealed. That is the main word, that which has been revealed by God. Um, when, when you talk about revelation, you know, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we're talking about that which has been revealed. That's the, the, the root uh, word there, reveal. And so God is revealing a mystery, and that mystery is what is the mind of God? What is it that he wants us to do? What is his will? And as we already have discussed, we absolutely can know his will. It, it just comes down to, are we going to be honest when we come to the scriptures, when we come to his word, or are we not going to be honest? Because we can understand and we can apply. Um, and so just from the outset, what we find is uh, the, all of the words that we have before us, whether it be in, in your laps or on your phone, whatever the case may be, the Bible is the revealed word of God. Now, that brings us to the other side of this. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 29, a very familiar passage, but... An incredibly important and critical passage when we're talking about the silence of the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 29, in verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to, our, to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And, and particularly that, that notion at the very end of verse 29. All of these things, so that we may observe the words of the law. God has given us these things so that we can observe, so that we can apply these things. And so just hammering in the notion that we absolutely can understand God's will, the fact that he, he says from, you know, from the very beginning and onward. But also within Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, we find that there are things that God has not revealed to us. Incidentally, while this is um, a, a book that gives us much history, it is not the entire history of the human race from start to what will inevitably be the finish. This is giving us the history specifically of, of one man. And as we've talked about this before, the whole story of the Bible is centered on Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so it is all pointing towards him. From Genesis, it's pointing forwards. From, it's, uh, all the way in Revelation, it's pointing, uh, you know, from the Gospels and onward, it's all pointing back to that center piece of this story. That this is the man, this is the name that the entire story hinges upon. And so that is the focus. Now, we're not going to be necessarily focused on everything that the rest of the world... In fact, you look at one nation specifically as you go throughout this narrative. In the Old Testament, who do you follow the most? But Israel. And then even when it's the divided kingdom, you follow the northern and the southern, Israel and Judah. And you follow them even into their captivity. Now, you even talk about the years of silence. 
there is actually much interesting, even, history that goes on during those you know, roughly 400 years before Jesus uh, comes and gives that answer uh, to, to this prophet that they are waiting for that was prophesied in Malachi. But within that time, there's, there are governments, there are nations that become the powerhouse and that fall. We are not given that. And one thing that I think that tells us is that God says that wasn't important to his story. That didn't matter enough for God to in involve that, to reveal it through the prophets uh, and to give it to, to man so that way we can have salvation. No, he only is giving us what we need. Now, going over to John uh, chapter 25, the very end of John chapter, or the gospel of John, in chapter 21, uh, sorry, excuse me, John chapter 21 in verse 25, how does John end the entire gospel? He says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. That's how it ends. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus, being the centerpiece of this story, isn't it interesting that we're not even given all of the details of his life on earth? You have the birth of Jesus, and then you have a story where he's, uh, I, think, I think, 12 years old, and then it skips, you know, a couple decades. And then it goes to specifically to his ministry and, and the life of Jesus with regards to uh, when he began teaching the people, when he started, by, started his ministry by teaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then you go, and even within that, you're getting across the span of around three years. But then, especially in John, you get towards the end of John and you start slowing down to the weeks. And what that shows you is when, when, when history slows down, when God takes time to slow down to show us more detail, that means that this moment was incredibly important. And obviously, it was the moment of Jesus being put to death on the cross and beating death and giving us the victory through his resurrection. Now, all that just to say, there are many things that have not been revealed. It would be a much larger book that couldn't be contained in this room, in this auditorium, if he did give us every second since creation. There's a purpose behind that which he has revealed. So, focusing on Deut Deuteronomy 29 29. What does God's word say about what has been revealed and what has not been revealed? Specifically, what belongs to whom? Who has the right? Uh, in verse 29 again, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord. What belongs to us? The things revealed belong to us and to our sons that we may observe everything and keep the law or all the words of the law. So just from the from from the outset, what I want to find is when it comes to the silence of the scriptures, when it comes to the silence of God on whatever the question may be or whatever the topic may be that someone wants to bring in. We have to first ask the question, do I have the right to actually ask this question? Do I even have the right to to demand of God to give me this kind of information? And what we find is, no, we absolutely do not. We stand before God as but dust and ashes. And so I think we need to start with that kind of a mindset. What belongs to God are the secret things, but what belongs to us are that which has been revealed. And that, with that comes a great responsibility. And I think sometimes we can overlook that. That if, the, if this belongs to us, then we are very responsible for how we treat what has been revealed to us. So just from the outset, we need to have that attitude about us. Well, continuing on, just asking another question, what does acting on silence look like? Just a couple of stories that I want to go through as we look at this. Well, a couple of passages over in Psalm 19, beginning. Psalm 19. In, as we look at 
whether or not this permits or prohibits us from doing things, acting on silence, I want to show just, well, just spoiler alert, how foolish it looks when we do act on silence. First of all, it is acting on ignorance, truly. When you have no revelation, when you have been given no instruction, and you decide to act on something that, you know, based upon your own will, your own understanding, then guess what? You're acting on ignorance. You have no idea what's going to happen. You don't know if it's right or wrong. Just, and so it's kind of neutral. You'd have no idea whether or not it's something that can actually please the author, God, or you have no idea if it's something that is going to displease him. Now, um, especially when it comes to just talking to each other, those that we don't know the mind of, that we can't see into the hearts of man, um, I think that that's when it's more neutral. As we just saw in Deuteronomy 29, the silence of God actually has been given, has been spoken about. He's given us uh, some rule regarding that. So when it comes to God, he's already made himself clear. But especially when it comes to trying to interact and converse with each other, when we don't know what each other's thinking, we would never act on silence the way we sometimes do with God or the way some do with God. In Psalm 19, in verse 12 beginning, it says, Who can discern his errors? This is a question that David is asking. Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. First of all, how can can the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in God's sight? Well, when we've actually applied what we have heard and listened to when he has spoken... But also, as you look throughout this, how would you answer that question? Who can discern my errors? I don't think anybody, including David, would say, I know I can. Nobody would would raise their hand. I I think that's actually a passage that I looked at at one of the first lessons I preached here. And I even asked that question. No one is brave enough to say, oh, I I know I can do that. I have the the wisdom and I have the righteousness to be able to, to, to foresee all the potential errors in my life. No. In fact, we pray to God in the same way as David does. Please forgive me if I have sinned against you without knowing it. If I am guilty before your sight, please cleanse me and help me figure out what that is. That's how a lot of us pray. And I think that is a smart way to pray. I think it's a scriptural way to pray, especially as you look at Psalm 19. But as he says, equip me of hidden faults. How are we going to do that? How are we going to keep ourselves back from those faults? He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. I, I don't know how to make it more clear than David. He, through just a couple of these verses, right after he has talked so much about the, perfect, the perfection and the beauty of the law and, and the sufficiency of the law, he says, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. And so I'm not going to act by myself. When I act, it's going to be, upon, it's going to be based upon God's will and God's will alone. Nowhere else am I going to find my, my understanding or my reasoning. I'm going to reason. I'm going to understand. My wisdom comes from God himself and his law. Well, so, so it, it's, it, when acting on silence, it is acting on ignorance. It's acting on presumption especially. When you think about, just to give an illustration, uh, if a parent talks to their child and they say, um, you know, they send, it's a Friday night and they want to watch a movie together. They say, all right, I'm going to give you my credit card and you're going to go and you're going to, you're going to go to Walmart. You're going to buy a movie, the movie that I, you're going to buy, I don't know, 
Superman. I, I don't know. Just for example, you're going to go buy Superman the DVD, and then uh, we'll watch that when you get back. Now, the child goes to Walmart, and he does that, but he comes back, and not only does he have a sack with the DVD that was requested, but he also brings this gigantic, you know, 65-inch TV along with him. Now, what is the parent going to say? Oh, <laughs> splendid idea. You know, we, we needed a bigger TV to watch this on. No, 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 no. Especially if you know how much those things cost, you're going to say, well, it's too bad you wasted the energy. You're going to need it to take it back. Now, you're going to ask the question, what made you think that you had the right to buy this with my money? If the child comes up and says, I mean, it has to do with what we're going to be doing tonight. You said you wanted to, me to buy this DVD, and now guess what? We can watch it on this, on this TV. But, but I didn't ask you to buy the TV. I only told you to get that DVD. Now, whether it's connected to the activity, whatever the case may be, it wasn't specified. It was not authorized by the parent. Well, you go to, I think, uh, another illustration, but maybe an even more absurd illustration. You have uh, maybe a Christian that's struggling financially, and they're just, they're just trying to, to keep themselves afloat. And so being a good brother or sister, you're, you, you go over to them, you give them your credit card again, you, and you give them your card, and you say, listen, I know you're struggling. Just get your groceries on me this month or this week. I, I, I want you to take care of you. I want you to just go ahead and get what you need. So they come back a couple of days later when you meet again for, for Wednesday night service and, and uh, they give you back your credit card, they give you the receipt, you know, just so that way you have it for your records. And then you look on the receipt and it's, it's not for groceries, but it's actually for a trip to Hawaii. Now, how are you going to respond? Yes, yes, you gave them your credit card willingly and you said you get what you need. But when you were talking about that, you were specifically talking about the groceries that they have been struggling to afford. You did not say, you go ahead and buy yourself whatever you, you go ahead and you, you, you give yourself a good vacation. And if someone did that, we would look at them and say, are you crazy? What in your right mind made you think that that would be okay? Now, that illustration is a bit more absurd. Either way, though, the reason I went through that is just to show how absurd it always looks when acting on silence. Though in the first illustration, buying the TV is somewhat connected to watching the movie. If you're acting on silence, it is just as absurd as someone taking your, your credit card instead of buying groceries like you told them to and saying, this is what I need because I need to rest and I need to just, I need to de-stress. Well, guess what? That doesn't work. And we expect each other to understand that when we are having conversations with one another. And as I've made the case over and over again, why does it change with God? It doesn't. Answer, it doesn't. And so it's, it, is, it is absurd, it's silly to act on presumption, act on ignorance, because that's what you're doing. You're acting on ignorance, not wisdom. Well, going beyond that, it looks like arrogance. Um, actually, this is the same word as we find in Psalm 19 in verse 13 when he says, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. That same word for presumptuous occurs many times in Psalm 119. And I really just want to look at uh, all the ways it's translated. Psalm 119, 119. Beginning in verse 21, just a few verses here. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 21, it says, uh, you rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, 
who wander from your, from your commandments. Take away, reproach for, take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Uh, and, and so we don't have enough time to go through the entire, uh, even all, all the verses surrounding them, so I'll just try to stick with just the verses. But you see there in verse 21, he says, you rebuke the arrogant, the cursed. Well, skipping on in verse uh, 60, or 51, rather, he says again, the arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Going down to verse 69, it says, The arrogant, or the presumptuous, have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Now, before I move on, just understand that all throughout Psalm 119, what you find is, is the consistent notion, or the consistent principle, that what guides the righteous is God's law. In verse 11, he says, Hide your... I hide my, your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And it is about his law, his counsel, his word being a light to my feet, guiding my path. And so as he talks about the others that don't treat it in that same way, he calls them the arrogant or the presumptuous. Skipping down to verse 78, he says, May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, not the truth. But I shall meditate on your precepts. Down in verse 85, all your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted, or, or that's verse 86. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. So many instances, we'll go ahead and stop there, but in almost all these instances, remember the context of the psalm talking about how this is counsel. This is a lamp to my feet and a, and a light, uh, or a, a guide in my path. And as he talks about the unrighteous, as he talks about the presumptuous, the arrogant, it is those who don't treat it in the same way. It is those who are not in accord with God's law. And so it is arrogant. It's presumptuous to act on silence. It's the height of arrogance for us to look at something that we have, that we have no idea what God has to say about that matter and think that our ignorance is equal to what God has revealed. That's just absolutely absurd. It, it's crazy. In Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 11, the same word is actually used. He says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. God says he's going to put an end to it. And you can even go to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. God is opposed to the proud, but he exalts the humble. And so I, I hope that I'm making the case that it's certainly not smart it's certainly not wise to act on silence. And, and you put yourself before God in such a way, not as a servant, not as one who has no need to be ashamed, but one who is opposing God. Because when you uh, do this, you're throwing away that which has been revealed. Well, finally, within this point, acting on silence is, if I haven't made the case already, acting without authority. Over in Leviticus chapter 10, very quickly. Leviticus chapter 10. I believe that this is actually a, a, a lesson I'm planning on going through at some point in the next couple of weeks after we get through uh, Exodus. But Leviticus chapter 10, it's talking about, well, a couple, uh, some of the priests. You know that the priests were those who were descended from Aaron. All of Aaron's sons, they were the ones that could be priests, that could serve as priests before the Lord. Aaron had four sons. Now, we hear about Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10, and in not not in a positive light by any means. 
But what's so interesting about this uh, chapter is that the chapters prior to this, they have just been ordained. They have just been uh, consecrated as priests. They have just heard the responsibilities that they have. And it makes coming into this story that much more striking. Because even after hearing all of that, look what they do in verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 10. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I, I, first of all, I, just, I love how concise this story is. He says, they, they disobeyed. They were unfaithful. And they were destroyed because of it. There's a lesson there within itself. But, but especially as you look at this story, you see even with, uh, uh, in verse 1, at the very end of verse 1, it says that they offered this fire. We'll get to that word in just a moment for strange fire. But they offered fire which he had not commanded. In, at the beginning of verse 1, it says they picked up their respective fire pans. This is actually something that, only, that, that priests specifically were allowed to do that not uh, many other Israelites were. They actually had this job. This was their role in Israel. But even though it was their role to offer this incense, they didn't just get to do it any way they wanted. And God had been pretty clear about what he wanted to be offered. He is very clear. That's one of the reasons when we sometimes get to Exodus and Leviticus, we sometimes kind of groan because we know we're going to go through all these offerings. And sometimes it gets a little repetitive. And there is a point in and of itself. When God is repetitive, there's a reason for it. And even though he's made himself so abundantly clear, what do Nadab and Abihu do? Well, let's just offer this other fire. Who cares? They did not have a faithful attitude. They did not have a, a, an honorable attitude, a reverent attitude, when it came to uh, performing this beautiful role that God had given them. Well, I, I want to just look very quickly at that word for strange I like the way the, the uh, NIV translates this. I don't generally like the NIV. I don't think it's as good of a translation. But I do like the way they put this here in verse 1. It says that his sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. You could look at all the different spots that this word is used throughout the Old Testament. In the New American Standard, it translates as, as strange. And it is helpful. But just very quickly, understand from the context, it's talking about unauthorized fire. What we've been talking about thus far. It is talking about that which God has not revealed. That's what they decided to act on. Even though foolishly, so foolishly because they had so much more that he had actually given to them. That belonged to them. But they, let's disregard all of that. I mean, why not? But it ends in their death. It ends in their destruction. And you see a consistent history. You can see a consistent lesson all throughout the history of Israel that that is what the inevitable end is when we don't just take what God has revealed to us and act on our own reasoning. Well, finally, just to get in some application, answer the question very quickly, does silence permit? The answer is absolutely not. Now, I would say if you disagree, please make your case. But understand that while you make your case, you're not going to be able to make it on silence. You're not going to be able to make your case about how silence permits by being silent. You actually have to give evidence. You have to supply evidence to show why this is the case. And isn't that the way it is universally? The burden of proof lies on the one who wants to approve something. Shocker, I know, right? 
The burden of proof lies on the one who wants to approve something. You go into, uh, you know, you go into a court in the United States, and you, we, have, we have that phrase you know, embedded in the Constitution, innocent, innocent until proven guilty. And there are many reasons for that, one being that you know, people can just make false accusations. And what we're trying to do, because we are limited in our knowledge, we're not omniscient. We can't know everything like God knows. And so what we have to do is just base our judgments on the evidence that we have. And then you look at the jury and they have to decide whether, you know, if it is beyond a doubt. If there is a reasonable doubt, well, it's a lot harder to make those convictions, isn't it? To say you're guilty. But the person who, who is on trial, <laughs> the, the, the prosecutor, the lawyer that's trying to convict this person of, of breaking a law, they don't get to just come, come up to the jury and say, you know what? I don't want any of your evidence. I don't want any of the evidence that you actually have against this man. I'm not going to accept any of it. And, or beyond that, they, you can't come up to a jury and say, you know what? You can't prove... That this individual, that the one who's you know, on defense, the one who is uh, going to be convicted, you can't prove that he wasn't in this area at the time. Well, that's, that's, not, really, that's not really what is the matter. Or that's not the point of what they're trying to do. They're trying to figure out if he actually broke the law, if he committed a crime. And you're the one that has to provide the evidence to suggest that he did break, break the law. And so that just doesn't work universally. This is how we communicate. And what does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 10 and 11? He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does he say at the very beginning of verse 11? Essentially, you don't get to say whatever you want. If you speak as a Christian, if you're speaking and, and you are speaking on behalf of God, you better start the way all the prophets did. Thus saith the Lord. And if you're going to decide to act on something, you better start with that in mind. This has been approved by God's law. This is something that I, I, I want, I, when I was teaching a high school class, we were talking about dating. And I said, you know, forget the question of how far is too far when it comes to dating. You have to answer, the, you have to answer for yourself. You have to approve from Scripture. Is it okay to hold their hand? Is it okay to kiss them while you're dating? You have to approve that. It, and listen, we can talk about judgments and whatnot, but just understand that you don't get to just walk forward saying, well, I don't know any better and I'm just going to keep it that way. No, when you make a decision, it can't be based on silence. It can't be based on ignorance or presumption. That is the trap of the devil. That is a temptation of the devil. That's one of the things that we say consistently when it comes to worship, when people are trying to add things in. We say... you. Whenever we do something, we try to make sure that it is supplied by Scripture. Now, people will try to bring up certain examples that they think prove, well, you're not doing this either. Well, if I'm not following the law of God, if I'm not following His commandments, then I'm going to stop immediately. If I can't approve something, I'm not going to go along with it, and I'm going to repent. Now, that's, that's a silly argument to make because what you are really implying is that you understand, you acknowledge that you are also in the wrong. But we do have a reason for everything that we do. And we're going to get to that more as we continue on throughout the, uh, in, in the next 
lesson or two, I'm, and I'm pretty sure it'll stop there, <laughs> but no promises. But so, so does silence permit? It does not. It rather prohibits because we don't want to act on ignorance or presumption. We want to act on what has been revealed by God. Now, final uh, conclusions or applications for this. What does acting on silence reveal about us? We already talked about what it looked like. What does acting on silence reveal about us? First of all, just a couple of things. I think it reveals that we, oh, whoops, I don't know what just happened there. There we go. <laughs> first of all, you got a bit of a spoiler alert there. But first of all, it reveals that we don't think too much of, of God's revelation. It reveals that really we have depreciated it, we have devalued it, devalued it in our minds. Because what are we saying when we act on silence? God's word wasn't enough. That which he spoke, it was not enough. And guess what? That excuse ain't going to be enough when we give an account for everything that we've done before God. So we don't get to just throw these things away, whether it be because we just don't like the way it's going to affect us or just because we say ignorance is bliss. No, it is not. So it reveals uh, how we view God's word often. Also, I would say it just reveals that we simply that we simply don't know enough of God's revelation. And I think that this is one of the main issues when it comes to the silence of God. When people have questions, most often I'd say that there is revelation on, on why we do what we do or why we approach things the way we do. The problem is that people just, they just want to add things in anyway, even though God has spoken. I think about especially 1 Samuel chapter 13. You recall, we won't go there right now, but you recall in 1 Samuel 13, Saul was given instruction by Samuel on what to do. And it says that he waited seven days, but Samuel did not come, God's prophet, he did not come when Saul wanted him to. And so he, you know, he jumped the gun and he decided that he was going to, to, to uh, give these offerings. And as soon, as soon as he is finished doing that, that which was not authorized for him to do, Samuel comes. And he asked, what have you done? What have you done? I think about what, what Samuel tells Saul, whether it be in chapter 13 or chapter 15. Do you not understand that obedience is more important? That God desires obedience over sacrifice. He desires for us to do what he has said. And, that, and, and Saul could not say, well, I was worried about what was going to happen. I was just trying to perform the offering. But was that for you? No, it was not. And, and I think the same when someone brings in, talking about worship again, when someone asks about why we sing a cappella, why we don't use instruments, uh, I would just ask, is the Bible silent about how we are to worship today? Is it really silent about how New Testament Christians are to worship? No, it's not. In, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to, uh, in your hearts to God. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19, he says, To speak to one another in psalms and in, in, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Two different areas where it says, two different passages where it says the same thing. How are you to worship in music? You worship in song. You sing these praises to God. And someone says, well, what about instruments? Yeah, exactly. Where do you read about the instruments in the New Testament worship? Now, sometimes that can be an honest question, but often I don't think it is. Where do you read about that? You don't. They sang. And so we are going to sing as well. And it is a beautiful thing, a beautiful avenue of worship that we have to sing. So the question is, do you even know the revelation that God has given you up to this point? 
So maybe we just need to become more acquainted with his word. Well, finally, I think that this reveals when we act on silence that we have been ensnared by one of the devil's most subtle temptations. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted while in the wilderness. After he's fasted for 40 days, he is tired, he is exhausted. The flesh, that would be an incident where it absolutely is weary. And it would be so easy to, to fall into these temptations and do what the devil's saying. Now, you, think, you look at that first temptation especially that says, you know, where, where Satan is trying to tell Jesus, well, why don't you just turn these bread to stone? What's the problem there? Turning, turning uh, stones to bread, rather. That would be counterproductive. <laughs> but turning stones to bread, what's the problem there? Why would that be sin? Because God has not told me to. God led him into the wilderness. And Jesus trusted that God was going to lead him further. And he is not going to be led. He is not going to be led by anyone other than the Father. And in verse 4, he just quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, that where it says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He meant that literally. He would starve to death before he ever acted on anyone's will other than his father's. Do we have that same kind of motivation? We need to. John chapter 6 and verse 63. It says, uh, as Jesus is talking to the crowds, as he is teaching the crowds, it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. They were thinking too much about the, the flesh, about the physical, the physical bread. And here he comes saying, I am the, that true bread from heaven. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. You skip down just a little bit after that, after the crowds have left Jesus because they don't like what he has to say. In verse 67, he asks the disciples, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Who else? Who else can say the things that you do? Who else can give us these words that lead to eternal life? Answer, no one. There is no other access. There is no other path. There is no other source of eternal life but the Father. We find life in what God says, not in what God doesn't say. So why are we putting so much of our faith in what has not been said? Now, I'm not saying anyone here, but many who say that they are Christians today do that. So... I just want to end with that notion. God has spoken. What will you do now? Have you fallen prey to the devil's wiles and been acting on not God's word, not God's authority, not, not God's uh, understanding, but your own understanding? In Proverbs 3 and verse 5 through 7, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Will you trust the Lord? Will you leave behind your own understanding? And will you follow after his word like a guide, like a lamp before, before us? Are you willing to do that? If you wish to take that responsibility on, this responsibility that is given to all who hear the word, if you need help to become a Christian, if you need help to put yourself in a right relationship with God by any means, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.